0: Good afternoon, everybody. Wait for everybody to get their seats. Welcome. Uh, So we wanna welcome everybody to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you that are new here, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two that are online, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel free to visit us at iwp.edu or grab a staff member after the lecture. To support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu backslash donate. Before we begin the lecture, we ask that you take a moment to silence all electronic devices. Good idea. <laughs> so we'll give you just a second here. Perfect. Thank you. Today we'll be hearing from Mrs. Mitzi Perdue, who will deliver a lecture entitled A View of Ukraine of the Ukraine War You Haven't Heard. Mrs. Mitzi Perdue is an anti-human trafficking advocate, a former rice farmer, former president of the 40,000, 40, excuse me, member American agri and a US delegate to the United Nations Decade on Women Conference in Nairobi. In the 1990s and early 2000s, her nationally recognized column, The Environment and You, was the most widely syndicated environmental column in the US. Recently, she's written a biography of Mark Victor Hansen, the chicken soup for the soul guy, who is currently in the Guinness World Book of World Records for selling half a billion books. Royalties and proceeds from this book, entitled Mark Victor Hansen Relentless, will go to supporting law enforcement in Ukraine. Additionally, Mrs. Purdue's family, in particular her sister and her late husband, have been borders of IWP for about three decades. So we thank you and your family for that support. With that, please welcome Mrs. Mitzi Perdue.
1: Perfect, uh, is it on? Yeah, I, I've been taught that you're supposed to eat the microphone, so I'll do my best to eat the microphone. And I also want to stay in frame. (laughs) Yeah, I'm one of those. Okay, well, let's start with how I dare title this talk, A View of Ukraine That You Haven't Heard. Because in fact, I'm approaching all of you with a certain humility, because I bet the odds are a lot of you know maybe 100,000 times more about Ukraine than I do. So how do I dare title a talk, a view of Ukraine that you haven't heard. And here's why. It has to do with how I got invited to visit Ukraine. I've spent the last few years of my life raising funds and to a small amount, awareness on on combating human trafficking. I wrote a story for Psychology Today. I write for their blog every week. I wrote a story from somebody who had just come back from Ukraine and his field is anti-trafficking. And I interviewed him, and I did my best to tell his story and what, what Ukraine is up against in human trafficking. And then, just the world, from my point of view, the world's best coincidence happened, and that is the head of Kyiv Region Police, his name is and- General Andrey Neb- Nebitov, and there's 6,000 police in the, that he's head of but here's the coincidence. Uh, he wrote his master's thesis on combating human trafficking. And somehow my story in psychology today about trafficking, human trafficking during the war in Ukraine, it came to his attention. And he invited me, you know, that resulted in a Zoom call in which he invited me to come see for myself how it's so much worse than anything that I've been told. And 10 days later, I fly to Warsaw, drive in the company of a couple of of people who were making the same trip that I was to the border uh, at Lviv, and then I met by General Nevitov, a representative of his office, and then in addition, uh, a plainclothes policeman and four guards with AK-47s. Oh my. Well, That meant that for the next five days, I got to see the war in Ukraine from the point of view of law enforcement. And General Nebitov told me that he had tried very hard to interest the State Department in the following proposition. If If you care about humanitarian relief, you probably have a great many contacts in the United States. If you're military, you probably have a great many contacts in the United States said that he had been trying for months, working with the State Department, to figure out how he could make contact with people in the United States whose background is law enforcement. He said, I was the first one. Uh, I was the first member of the press and the first person who has at least somewhat deep contacts in law enforcement. So here I am in Ukraine. And uh, that's a long way of saying of why I think, or I even hope that you haven't heard some of the things that I'll be sharing with you because they're all from a law enforcement point of view. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I told you I was one of them. No surprises. This is General Nebitoff. that's me, and a quote from him, I'll give you the background of the quote. He said, this is not widely known in the United States, although I've written, I've written six published stories since getting back on what I'm about to describe. One of the first things that the invaders did on you know, beginning February 24th, was they would bomb the police stations, steal the police cars, and empty the, the prisons. And General Nebitov told me this is part of a PSYOP, that the goal is you want people so demoralized that that they can't resist. And he said, here's how it works. You're absolutely traumatized that your country is being invaded, but then on top of that, the people that you would no- normally go, whose, whose job is to serve and protect, they're out of commission because their communications is gone, the police station is gone, the cars are gone, and so, you as, as a citizen, how demoralizing must it be when the robbers, the looters, the rapists, the arsonists are just running free and there's nobody you can go to. He said that, that the Russians knew what they were doing when, when they attack law enforcement almost first because a demoralized population is easier for the invader to control. And I want to see where we're going next. Uh, I want to share with you three impacts of the war in Ukraine that affects law enforcement. And we will start with a global health crisis. Now, what does law enforcement have to do with a global health uh, crisis? A lot, because, actually I wanted to go, I'm gonna go back to this slide, but I wanted to show you a map that will I wanted so that you'll see the context of what I'm talking about. Come on, come on wherever you are. Well, I'm just going to point. Poland Lviv, Kyiv. Oh no, that's not Kyiv. Kyiv. And then up here is Chernobyl. As the crow flies, I think it's about sixty-two miles. Uh, if you're driving, maybe it's ninety miles. Uh, and now let's go back to the previous slide. And we're on the global cri- health crisis. On the first, my first day there, I was driven in a caravan. It was, it was, you know, for me, well, something I've never experienced before. The, the four guards with their AK-47s are part of, like a convoy with a police car ahead and a police car behind. And we go to Chernobyl. Why Chernobyl? You know, what's that have to do with, with police? Well, it happens a lot and it happens, you now there's a possibility that it could, yeah, somewhat remotely, but it could affect every person here. And it's the following. When the Russians came down from Belarus to Kiev, and I'm I'm trying to say Chernobyl, the Belarus is about eight miles from Chernobyl. And so that was just an almost predictable pathway for the Russians to invade, to go through Chernobyl. And Chernobyl was, was really convenient for them because there's not a lot of population there. You can mass a lot of troops there. And I'm told by the people in Chernobyl that as far as they could tell, the Russians didn't care one little bit, that this is an exclusion area. There are, there are hot spots where, where the background radiation is 4,000 times greater than normal background radiation. It is enough to kill you in a matter of weeks. And in the exclusion area, it's roughly 1,000 square miles, and in that exclusion area, there are hot spots. And they tend to be where there's a lot of irradiated metal the function of the Chernobyl police up until February 24th was to keep the poachers away from the scrap metal. Because the scrap metal, you know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you really need money and you're, you don't care about the ethical part of it, Chernobyl's like a happy hunting ground because first of all there's a lot of meat that you can, that you can kill, deer for example, and sell it locally or I'm told that you could carry 40 pounds of mushrooms or berries, but the most lucrative part is scrap metal. Now, scrap metal, is there anybody here who has a physics background, a science background? Ah, come on, raise your hand so I can exploit you.
2: <laughs>
1: no, then, then I'm gonna do my best, but I, I invite anybody to correct me because I'm not a scientist, although I was a science writer for a good bit of my life, but not on physics. But nevertheless, I will do my best to repeat what I heard. Subject to correction, uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert in what I'm about to talk about. But nuclear radiation, for some reason, uh, there's metal that will just draw it and not let it go. And I know that there's a more scientific way of explaining that. But nevertheless, there are hot spots that, that will kill you. And they happen to be, for the most part, in the areas where there's scrap metal. And uh, we're going to look at one of the giant scrap metal places. Um, I'm giving this out of order. Do you all forgive me? Oh dear, this is really out of order. But I wanted, since we were talking about scrap metal, I want to show you, this is a somewhat typical uh, junkyard in Chernobyl. Uh, I didn't take that photograph, it's from Adobe Stock, but it is like things that I saw. And I would guess that there aren't a whole lot of journalists who got to see this kind of thing, because... uh, when we were driving by you know, piles of scrap metal, uh, we were going at 80 miles an hour because if you're going zip, uh, you're not going to be there long enough to, to be made ill by it. But at the end of it, you know, they went through with, I think it's dosimeters and Geiger counters to see if we had a dangerous uh, amount. But I got to see these things and now back to, uh, back to Chernobyl. I, okay, what I'm about to say I believe to be true, but I know it's a little bit controversial, so entertain the thought that it's not accurate, but here goes. What you're looking at here is something called the Big Ear. Oh, but so many of you are in intelligence, you probably have heard of the Big Ear. In in Russian, I think it's Duga. Does anybody know about the Big Ear? Yes, I'm so glad that you don't, then I get to tell you about it. The, what I'm telling you so far is, is accurate. I'll tell you when we get to the inaccurate or the part that I'm not sure of. This is about two miles from the Chernobyl, maybe three miles from the Chernobyl power plant. What is it? Well, for a start, it's 500 feet high. It's half a mile long. It was started in the late 1970s, and it was due to go into complete action uh, somewhere around 1986. Uh, It cost more than, it cost, I'm told, double what the whole Chernobyl nuclear power plant cost. Uh, What's its function? Its function is, these are turbines and radar, and it was, the big ear was, it was super secret at the time, but it was so powerful that it could pick up over the horizon radiation and in theory it would be able to tell within three minutes if we had launched an ICBM. Now what does that have to do with Chernobyl? A lot. And now's the part that's controversial. I've I've read, I heard what I'm about to tell you but then when I went checking it up people say, "Mm, maybe not, but here's what I was told. That the big ear used so much electricity that it couldn't function without a nuclear power plant. And that the reason that Chernobyl was built to begin with was to accommodate the energy that this thing took. So uh, if you haven't heard that about Chernobyl, again, I can't swear that it's true, but I can swear that people who were there told me so. And maybe we should believe them. Anyway, let's go from this When they first began building it, it it wasn't working right. And they had to do endless fine tuning, but they pretty much got to having it at its operational state just before Chernobyl blew. And we're gonna talk in a moment more details about why uh, Chernobyl is still a global health crisis. This is actually a painting, It's uh, it's not a photograph. It's an art, artist's rendition of, of what, it, what, it, what the explosion looked like. Has anybody besides me watched the HBO presentation? Raise your hands if you have. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I recommend it to anybody. It's, it's such a lesson in denial because for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, when, the, when the explosion first took place, people weren't willing to pass on bad information up the, or, or if they passed it on, the people who, who should have passed it on next said, no, no, it, will, uh, it can't possibly be a million people will die if that's true, it just can't be true. And so for a very long time, they didn't let the residents of Chernobyl leave because they were afraid that it would panic people. It's, it's I recommend this to anybody. This is what it looked like, uh, it, that's not how it looks like today but this is what it looked like uh, by the time you could take photographs. This is what it looks like today. And I wish I could get this nice little thing to... I'm pointing it, it works here and it's not working here. It doesn't like me. This, This is where this part is. It's now covered in something called the sarcophagus. That's the sarcophagus. And we actually had to drive by that fairly quickly. I mean, I would have liked to stop and and take better photographs. Uh, Am I eating the microphone enough so that people in back can hear? Nod, please, thank you. Uh, We had to drive by that fairly quickly because it's at a point where, again, it's becoming dangerous. But they don't have the, yeah, they certainly can't address it with a war going on, and they don't have the budget for it. That's a whole other story. Oh, now let's go to the junkyard. The the poachers right now today are bringing trucks up to the hot spots, and there's no deterrence because the police at Chernobyl, the Chernobyl police station was just bombed to smithereens. Well, at least bombed, hollowed out. I'll show you a picture in a moment. Uh, But they also, they had a fleet of 30 cars. Uh, They were Chevrolet, by the way. And if anybody knows anybody from a car company, uh, one of the big General Motors level car companies, uh, please let me know because I got a big question for you. But uh, the, the Ukrainian police, the Chernobyl police, almost their biggest job was to patrol the exclusion area, and they know very well where the poachers want to go. They can't do it now because the Russians either destroyed or stole the fleet of cars. That means that there's no deterrence. In the past, if you were a poacher, you probably didn't really want to poach very, well, you did want to poach very badly, but you might not do it because if they catch you uh, you'd spend 15 years in jail and they were pretty good at catching people and prosecuting them and solding them away for 15 years. So there, there was a major deterrence, whether it was for scrap metal or whether it was for, for meat. And th- there's one story that I learned while I was there. And it has to do with danger to the local population. The, The deer eat the grass, munch, munch, munch or maybe leaves, and then it gets bioconcentrated in them because they keep eating it year after year, which means by the time a poacher gets a deer, uh, that deer can probably cause radiation sickness for anybody who eats it. So yeah, the Chernobyl police are just highly motivated to do what they can to stop the poachers. But in one case, there was uh, a poacher, and this is pre-invasion, a poacher had a collection of deer antlers, and this is where it gets international or global. The, what, the, what the poachers do is they grind up the deer antlers and then sell them as deer horns. Now, horns are widely thought in, in certain Asian medicines uh, to well, to be aphrodisiacs or to, lower, uh, to act like aspirin, lower temperatures. Uh, so they're they're just highly in demand, and so uh, the deer antlers that were that were confiscated before this guy was sent off to jail, they were in a special like radiation-proof room that that the police keep for for evidence, and they had to be far away from these antlers. You know, inside this, I suppose it's a lead lead-lined room. The Russian soldiers broke into it, and somebody made off with deer antlers that. The, I talked I talk with physicists while I was there. There was a woman named Oksana. I'll show you a picture of her in a minute. But Oksana told me that there was enough radiation in this deer antler, probably through some kind of bio, uh, that concentration of, of, of radiation because the thing is eating it and it goes into its, its antlers. There was enough to kill the person who got it but he, we presume that he took it home, uh, that he took it back to his, wherever he and his fellow invaders were uh, camped. And that would probably, you know, there's a pretty good chance that several dozen men had pretty severe radiation sickness. Oh, they also said that the Russians, because Chernobyl was a really good staging area for them, that we know that they would... Uh, that they had their camps in places where they just plain were, sometimes for two or three weeks at a time, and every one of those people, because we know that they were in hot spots. There, there are an awful lot of Russian soldiers who have radiation sickness right now. Well, back to the to the, metal, uh, the scrap metal dealers. They sell it in the global market, and it doesn't get into this country Uh, Because we actually, in this country, were aware of the problem of irradiated scrap metal, and we test for it. But there are other countries throughout the world that don't. And, you know, a small amount of highly irradiated metal can ruin a whole batch. And where it has been found, I was reading, I mean, this is on the Internet, but I was reading about the harm that scrap metal can do. You find it in, let's see, a factory that makes doorknobs. You may have to destroy a million dollars worth of stuff uh, if you've got highly irradiated scrap metal. But think of all the times that it's not caught. And you know, supposing you're in an area which, where a factory used irradiated scrap metal. Five years from now, you got like a blood cancer or a bone cancer and you never know where it came from but it could have come from Chernobyl. So this is, I mean, this is, is a global issue and there is a solution to it. The solution is, I would love to raise enough money or even better, contact a car company that would, for the sake of fantastic, good public relations, would donate 23 Chevrolet cars. Actually, that would take, uh, the police told me, you know, it would take any uh, all-terrain vehicle, but if they wanted to replace what was stolen, uh, Chevrolet. If anybody knows such a person, please let me know. All right, we've talked about, we're going to talk about three aspects of, uh, of how the war is impacting law enforcement. So a global health crisis from radiated scrap metal. Domestic violence. This is a police training station that's also near Chernobyl. And notice how, just how much destruction, but now let me show you the inside. Uh, Again, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I'll repeat what I heard. Does anybody here know about thermobaric bombs? Can I invite you to say what a thermobaric bomb does?
2: Well, I think it's basically similar to a fuel air bomb. It's, I'm not sure the exact specifics, the honest is, so maybe I should raise my hand. Um, I'm guessing it has something, it kind of works similar to like thermite and or like white phosphorus and it has that kind of melting effect on, on metallic objects. And I mean, it's not definitely not easy to extinguish it I'm trying to, try to fight out fire from such a device is, uh, okay
1: that 's exactly what I heard okay, so i am
2: not so stupid after all
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I love it. you validate that i 'm repeating the right thing the I was with some I was with a couple of people from law enforcement uh, who actually know an awful lot about bombs, mm-hmm. and I heard the word thermobaric, and I also heard phosphorus uh, and you can tell if it 's phosphorus or not by. Uh, you look at the hinges of the door, and if they've melted, uh, phosphorus. But in this case, uh, there were fa- places where phosphorus bombs were used, but in this case, uh, thermobaric. And look at the impact of it. They, the way they described it to me is uh, they, this whole police training center was turned into a very high-temperature furnace. Uh, it didn 't knock down the walls, which regular rockets might do instead somehow uh, i 'm not sure how it got inside but uh, in bef- before the thermobaric bomb there was uh, there were walls, there were desks, there were file cabinets nothing I mean they just it, it turned into a furnace. It uses the
2: oxygen- the surrounding oxygen to basically...
1: Your turn. No, I I really would like this to be as interactive as possible because I'm reporting on what I saw, but I don't pretend to expertise.
2: I'm, no, I'm by no means an expert here, um, but it basically takes the surrounding, the oxygen in the surrounding area here and turns it into a giant furnace, like you said. So essentially it melts everything around. Kind of like a fuel air bomb then, right? Very similar, yeah.
1: Okay, I, listen, I, I... I I welcome as deeply as I can, uh, I mean, because I'll learn by by what you say. But one of the things, uh, what we're looking at right now is that police training center that I showed you on the previous slide. This is the inside. (coughs) And the training center, one of its specialties, because this is a major, major function of law enforcement, and we are on the subject of domestic violence right now, back up a little bit. And remember the map where I showed you driving from Lviv to Kiev? I happened to sit, on, I was in a van, and I happened to sit beside a guy who was a social worker. And, you know, as we're driving along, and I'm trying to see everything I can, uh, I was noticing what seemed to me an enormous number of car wrecks. I mean, it seems to me if I drive seven hours in this country, it... I'm, I'm guessing that this, but I, I think it would take 20 trips for me to see one car accident. Uh, and that's guessing. But I think I'm directionally accurate when I say that I think that we saw maybe 10 car wrecks. And you know, after seeing one and then pretty soon another and then another, I comment on this uh, to the social worker that I was sitting. His name was Pavel, uh, Pavel rather. and. Yeah, what's with all these car wrecks? And he said, and this is a social worker speaking, he said, and also we're in August, end of August, he said that the estimate is that 30% of the population of Ukraine is suffering from PTSD. Uh, And my way of expressing it, when I think about it is, uh, I'm guessing everybody in this room remembers 9-11. Mm. And how, how awful you felt when you saw buildings that are American falling down. Well, imagine if you're seeing that every day, day after day. Uh, the, what Pavel told me was that people are on edge. They're not thinking straight. Maybe they're not sleeping right. And one of the symptoms of it is car accidents. But he also said uh, there's another aspect of it which is domestic violence. Because supposing that you've been at the front and seen horrible things, or you're worried about, i mean, you can't find a job, uh, you don't know that your country's gonna survive, uh, you're, you're just drenched in, in the things that cause PTSD, and you're perfectly likely to take it out on your significant other. And he said, you know, in the past that, w- he said that we, we actually were very, very good at dealing with domestic violence. And he told me, uh, by the way, this is, this is Pavel. Uh, he was with me at this because he's a volunteer for the police. Uh, he told me that, well, well, let me back up. What we're looking at right now is a training room And he said, it's laid out in such a way that it duplicates a a room that would be in Soviet-era construction where you walk in the door, on the right is a bathroom, Uh, you walk a few feet more, and there's an area where maybe you'd eat, maybe you'd watch television, and then kind of around the corner from the bathroom is uh, maybe a bed. But they're all laid out the same, and so the police could practice and here's what they'd practice they'd get a domestic violence call and this is pre uh, february twenty fourth they'd get a domestic violence call, and this is what they this is what they used to train uh, they would their goal was to get there in less than thirty minutes, but along the way they would have uh the, the police station would be telling three people who are in the police car who are speeding towards a domestic violence situation, and the police would would be told, uh, "You know, is this person in our data bank? If so, uh, is it alcohol? Is it drugs? You know, what do we know about this guy? Uh, is he likely to be armed?" And then, uh, then the poli- the three police enter, and the first policeman to enter. Uh, his job is assuming it's a woman who's being threatened. His job is very rapidly i mean maybe i mean it's almost like ballet it's it's they practice it so often and by the way, they're watched through cameras and critiqued uh, but anyway, so they come in and by the way, they don't beat down the door because their goal is to uh, de-escalate the situation, and their real goal is for the couple to get back together again. They don't want them separated, but so they grab the woman, or the woman entering. Sorry, the policeman entering, grabs the woman, and whisks her inside the bathroom and shuts the door, and then the other two deal with the, uh, with, the man. Presuming it's a man, with the uh, domestic violence situation. And they probably know whether he's armed or not. Uh, and again, the goal is to have this couple back together again. That was then, what is it now? Well, first of all, the police don't have the ability that the, the training station is bombed, it's gone. Uh, the police car on, the communication is gone. But even on top of that, and this is something that Pavel told me, he said that in the past, uh, you really didn't worry that much about things like grenades or AK-47s, but when the Russians left, when, in, in the towns where the Russians left, where people are just extremely traumatized anyway, there's there's the issue that there's all sorts of <sighs> weapons that they never had to cope with before. I mean, when you entered before you, your policeman, you probably didn't expect somebody with an AK-47 pointed at you. I mean, it's just all gotten catastrophically worse. The, this is something, Pavel told me, I was on the phone with him just like three days ago, and I had repeated back to him what he, what he had told me about a third of the population has PTSD. He said, it's changed. He says it's at least 50% now. We're just all so on edge that, you know, nuclear weapons might be used. Uh, he lives in Kyiv. And I talked with him the day that, I think it was Sunday, that when the, when, when the Russians began attacking Kyiv. I mean, I, I, I don't understand why it's not 100% that has PTSD. Well, let's move to the third. Human trafficking. Yes, please.
2: Uh, Sorry to I know I said you want this to be interactive. Um, I, indeed I, have I do. I background. I'm former U.S. Customs and Border Protection and Immigration Customs Forces. I that AOC wants to defund. But anyway, point being is that both of those agencies I've worked for, we would have purview on enforcing the laws that do human trafficking as well as poaching. Because you know we help enforce Endangered Species Act work with Fish and Wildlife Service. So that preamble cites. my question is, when you talk about how law enforcement agencies in Ukraine were targeted, was that, just talk about you know, domestic, municipal police farms, or were they targeting immigration and customs offices also that would be in the position to fight issues like human trafficking? So that's basically my long rambling question.
1: Okay, Did I, I'm assuming since there's a mic that everybody heard the question. Uh, my impression that they, they weren't very selective. If there was a police station, bomb it. And I'll, I'll tell you some of the second order uh, targets. Children's schools, kindergartens. Because the goal is demoralization. And the goal is to show people that their, con- their country can't protect them. The goal is just to take away every shred of, of normalcy that exists. Yes? I was
0: going to speak to that question. Anywhere that Russia has left.
1: Oh, can you speak real loud, or or grab the mic?
0: Anywhere that Russia has left, um, when they withdraw from that area, the first responders of every type have been destroyed, looted, expelled, imprisoned. Um, so, if, if there's any vestige of law enforcement, it's gone in any area that
1: they've been in. Okay. Oh, just to add to that, I'm told that you. Is it a correct assumption that, that people know about filtration rooms or camps? Uh, okay, for those who don't, uh, in pretty much every town that Russia captured, they would have torture rooms. And the purpose of the torture rooms was to get people to tell who are patriots, who are like police, who, who are people who could fight back. And yeah, you know, they they'd use like... I've seen pictures of like electric shock equipment, uh, particularly applied to men in a way that they couldn't apply it to me. Uh, or, or I saw pictures in Bucha, of there there were five people in this photograph that I saw, and they're they're bent over like this, and you know you might imagine that they that they were just well you can't imagine what they're doing. But here's what happened. Uh, they would shoot people in the knees, you know, bang, knees. And if the first person you know, just wouldn't speak, even though he's in unutterable agony, shoot him. Then to the next. And you know, again, they're trying to find out who is capable of resisting. Uh, let me gallop on because uh, I'm a deep believer that I shouldn't keep you longer than... Okay, let's go to human trafficking. Here are some things that I actually did get to see with my own eyes. I was, I've crossed the border into uh, Ukraine and also out of Ukraine, in both cases at Medica. And one of the people I was traveling with, he's a guy from Silent Bridge, which is an anti-trafficking organization. He's ex-military, and he spent probably the last 10 years combating human trafficking. That means that he could see things that were just totally invisible to me. Uh, And I'll describe one of the things. At Medica, which is this border crossing area, the car that I was traveling in from Warsaw to Medica, it was a rental car to be picked up five days later. And the rental cars get left off in a field, not not a paved parking lot. And it's about, I'm gonna guess, a 12 minute walk from the field to the crossing, and we're walking along, and I've been warned, you know, stay really close together because there's some real bad guys there who are looking to find somebody who's alone, and uh, I don't think I'm a candidate at 81 for human trafficking, but they could have a use for me anyway, such as, uh, I'm told the Wagner group just absolutely loves to get people, particularly rich-looking Americans, uh, for a ransom. Oh, uh, and, and the way they do it, by the way, I'm told, is they'll, they'll videotape cutting off, if it was me, cutting off my ear and sending it to relatives and say, uh, yeah, we want this millions of dollars immediately, or there goes the other ear. I mean, they're not nice guys. So I, I'm highly motivated to stay with my group. But as we're walking along, <sighs> Stephen, I won't use his last name because he doesn't want it used, but Stephen says... Uh, There's a field, Yeah, we're on a road. It's sort of like a dirt road, but we are on a path. And in a field that, I don't know how far away it is. I'm going to guess a quarter of a mile or or closer. Maybe two uh, New York City blocks. There's a sprinter, a silver, uh, we're talking the Mercedes sprinter car, van. And there are these two quite attractive looking girls who are, being shepherded into this van by a couple of kind of attractive-looking guys. And the guy who recognizes human trafficking in a way that I wouldn't said, those girls are trafficked, Uh, they've probably been invited to get in the van, told, hey, you look as if you could use a hot meal and a place to stay, and we can help you get a job. Come in. And then they end up like in Turkey or Dubai or someplace, uh most often never heard from again that well another thing that that I saw, but i wouldn't have noticed if 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 it hadn't been pointed out to me is there were this is this is leaving Ukraine heading towards uh Poland, and there we, i'm told we were in a fairly slow day there, it took about three hours to get through, and we were on a, on a fortunate day, but the, there, were, there were three guys who were just sort of sitting in chairs, uh, talking with each other of a bench, and they were taking photographs, selfies. And the guy, Stephen, told me, notice the angle of the selfie. He said, those three guys, they're spotters, and here's how it works. They take a photograph and you walking by and not looking for it, you think they're just taking a selfie. No, they're very, the spotters are absolutely skilled at discovering, uh, you know, does, does a potential victim, does she look tired? Does she have that thousand yard stare where she's just out of it? She's, you yep, know, she's, she's, she's exhausted, she's afraid. Maybe she's been walking for five days, her clothes are, uh, you know, dusty her shoes. That Stephen told me that they look at the hands and the shoes and the face, you know, just everything that's gonna show that this guy this person is gonna be easy prey. She's desperate and she's at her wit's end and she's probably in some kind of shock. So they take a photograph of the prospective victim and then send it to the person to the traffickers on the other side. So the traffickers on the other side, they're not just randomly picking victims. Nope. They've, they've already been warned by the spotters who, who would be perfect for this. Well, how do you, what way is there of combating this? General Nebitov, this is almost a, a pet project of his, uh, he said that we could save countless lives if we could do the following, if we could rehab buildings on, in border towns, such that there would be like very temporary shelters. If a girl who's yeah, the kind of person that the spotter would say, oh boy, this woman will get into your van without a, without a fuss, if before they cross, there could be a shelter where uh, maybe border guards or, or police or social workers could warn a girl, uh, have a 24-hour time out. We've got a place you can stay with with other people who are crossing the border, and we will we will tell you about the opportunities and the perils on the other side, instead of just having them wash through and go to their fate. Oh, uh, so far, the, the, it, uh, one of these rehabilitated buildings would cost about eighty thousand dollars, but the the local towns where the border towns have agreed to, once the buildings are available, that they will take care of their upkeep and uh, food, and the only expense would be the uh, rehabbing the building. And I'll share with you what I'm doing. I I have a ring that was given to me by my late husband, Frank Perdue. And that ring, there's such a story behind it The ring, uh, it came from the sunken treasure ship Atocha, which sank in 1622. And Frank Perdue was one of the financial backers of it. There were, it's the most expensive treasure ship that's ever been recovered. It had in today's dollars, two billion dollars worth of gold, silver, emeralds. And Frank, Frank, you know, he, he got a great big share of it, which he gave to the Smithsonian, but he also gave to to found a museum in Delaware. But one of the larger perfect emeralds is in that ring. And because it's historic, Sotheby said that you'll probably raise, well, we don't know how much money, but it, but likely a lot, and the auction is December seventh and if anybody knows anybody who collects jewelry or who cares or maybe a museum or you know just somebody who might be a candidate, I have I have some pamphlets on it. Would you pass them around and anybody who wants one grab it? But that's the story of the Atocha Emerald. Now, I promised that I would talk about nail, nail polish, breadcrumbs, and roses. What do they have to do with why I think that the Ukraine is going to make it? And it has to do with the following. With, I noticed the first day, I was kind of shocked and surprised because I was expecting a war-torn country. You know, a symptom of depression is you let yourself go. But I noticed that so many of the women that I saw had fresh manicures. You know, whether, whether we're in a police station or a restaurant, a store, a park, wherever I went. And, uh, you know, the next day, now that I'm noticing it, I now this is eyeballing it, but it seemed as if 90% of the women that I saw had manicures. This was shocking to me. Uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're under that much stress, how, how could you? How, how could you? Well, when I was in London, like two days after leaving, I got to, to, to speak with a guy who, he's a professor at Kent University. His name is Frank Ferruti. Anybody know that name? Well, his specialty is uh, learning about how people survive horrendous things like the death camps under Hitler. And he told me his opinion of why the women were wearing nail polish. And some of them, by the way, really did have yellow and blue nail polish. I mean, I was just, and and by the way, it's not just a Ukrainian, or it is a Ukrainian thing, because when I crossed over to Poland and spent a day there, I didn't see people wearing nail polish. Well, so I, I asked him, you know, what is this about? And he told me a story about how during World War II, there was a man in a concentration camp was starving to death. Uh, He should have weighed 200 pounds. By the time that the war was over, he weighed 136. So this man is dying. He would still save breadcrumbs from the meager rations he would get because a wild bird would come visit him every day. And afterwards he said, I survived because there was a moment of beauty and normalcy that... Could keep my spirits from just being completely crushed, and uh, Dr. Farudi said, "I bet you that that's why the women did their nail polish. That it's a great giant idi nahui. Anybody who speaks Russian, uh, okay, it's Putin. Go do something uh, anatomically impossible to yourself. <laughs> the, the, the the nail polish was a symptom of I'm not crushed." I I still am holding on to something of of beauty and normalcy. And, you know, why are we fighting? We're fighting for civilization. And this was a symbol. And I never asked anybody if that was true. However, I have sent that story that I just told you. I've sent it to several people in Ukraine, women, uh, and nobody's contradicted it. So whether it's conscious or not, uh, I think that that's kind of a sign of like not giving in, and I have one more reason to believe it, and it has to do with roses. This is a police station. Uh, it's it's about maybe 100 yards from the bombed out one that I showed you. And you don't see it in this picture, but like around here, there's a rose garden, probably 25 rose bushes, and they're all carefully weeded and tended and, and blooming. And this guy, He's the head of the station, and he cut a rose for me, and I'm thinking, you know, again, in the midst of just unbelievable suffering and and demoralization, uh, that the Russians didn't keep people from still clinging to beauty and what makes life worth living. Uh, I, I personally think that in my whole life, I will never get a more beautiful, thing given to me. Oh, uh, this is the opinion that I ended up with uh, of Putin at the end of it. And a summary. Ways of counteracting the things that I saw. The irradiated scrap metal crisis, Let's replace the Chernobyl police cars. Domestic violence. Let's help restore police infrastructure. Human trafficking. Let's fund shelters. And if anybody wants to help, uh, and I love $10 donations uh, because I get to send copies to, uh, to, to law enforcement in Ukraine saying that hundreds and hundreds of Americans really care about you. So if you feel like it and if you know how to text up to five five three one two, please do it. And questions. I figure we've got eight minutes of eight minutes of questions.